Solomon in a Singlet, a eulogy for Keith Rule. The morning after we got the news, I went out to your wood heap. There was that big old axe you used in the bush all those years ago, just the way you'd left it, stuck in the chopping block, like a signature. I split wood until the memories and the tears came flooding back. Then I dropped the axe back in the block, nose down, handle sticking up, as neat as you please, just like you would, Dad. Remember how we used to get around in the old Blitz Army truck, the one you'd bought when you were 16 and drove for years before you got a licence? I hadn't started school, but I'd begun my education, sprawled on the petrol tank that doubled as a seat, my head on your lap, lulled by the old side-valve V8 grumbling away behind its thin, tin cowling. I watched the way you used to pat the old girl into gear, those huge work-stained hands easing the gear stick through the unforgiving crash box while you double-clutched and caught the revs just right. Listen to her, you'd say as we laboured up a hill with tons of timber or a bulldozer on the back, slurping petrol fast as you could pour it out of a two-gallon bucket, and you'd laugh and sing King of the Road. You turned 24 the week I was born, so I remember you as a young bloke, a father of three boys by 27, fair head, a bit under six foot and around 13 stone in the old scale, equal parts, bone and muscle, common sense and good humour, wrapped inside a blue singlet with the honest smell of sweat and gum trees. You didn't change much in 30 years. Later, people sometimes took us for brothers born a dozen years apart. When I started Speak Ola back in 2015, I put out a call for great eulogies and about five people wrote to me saying, you've got to put up Andrew Rule's eulogy for his father, delivered in 1998. Solomon in a singlet, it's called, and it's so evocative of Australian country life. The image of the axe recurs throughout this extraordinary piece of writing. It is great to be back in 2023, and it's going to be an amazing year on Speak I've already got some great guests lined up. Andrew Rule is just the first of them. But if you'd like to support Speak Ola, there are ways to do it. Thank you to all the people who have signed up at patreon.com forward slash Speak And big thanks also to people who are receiving the Speak Ola newsletter. And if you go to news.speakola.com, you can either be a free subscriber, and I welcome you enthusiastically into the fold, or if you want the full experience and all the posts and all the snippets of all the best speeches, sign up as paid. It's $5 a month or $50 a year. News.speakola.com. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome. I am Tony Wilson and we march into the fourth year of the podcast, 44 episodes, aiming to do another 15 or so this year. And the format of the show, for those who haven't listened before, is that I speak to someone about a speech and then I play the speech. We've done it 43 or so times. And today it's a really special episode because the man who is my special guest is Andrew Rule. He's won most awards there are to win in Australian journalism. He's won the Graham Perkin Journalist of the Year Awards. He's won the Gold Walkley Award. He's won seven quills or something. He's associated with high-profile investigative reporting, such as the Jeff Clark case in the early 2000s. There's the Dennis Tanner investigation that happened in the early 90s. 
He's mainly thought of as a crime reporter, but his writing on Australian life generally is always first class. I know Andrew Rule got me to contribute to a book he was editing called Man and Beast, and it was men writing about animals. I wrote about my dog, Charlie. And perhaps Andrew Rule is best known in the popular imagination as the author of the Underbelly books. He wrote those with fellow crime reporter John Sylvester. They're bestsellers. They became a TV miniseries here in Australia and perhaps even worldwide. Andrew has shared his talents equally with the two major papers in Melbourne. He's written for The Age, perhaps for most of his career. And then late in his career, he's gone over to the Herald Sun, where he still is writing crime features regularly. I mentioned at the outset that Speakola is a listener-supported show and it's made possible because people are donating on Patreon and on the news.speakola.com substack platform. But we do have a sponsor for 10 weeks and that sponsor is docplay.com. Docplay is an all-documentary streaming service and I am a regular there. There are so many great documentary series there. I watched one over Christmas called Hip Hopperation. That is just a classic. I highly recommend it. It's a New Zealand documentary about people, men and women between the ages of 70 and 95, who form a hip-hop troupe and compete in the World Hip-Hop Championships. Hip-Hop-oration. It was a heartwarmer, to say the least. There's also famous Academy Award-winning films you'll remember. Many of you will remember Waco, Terms of Engagement, which is a documentary classic. I watched the music documentary Dig from the early 2000s. I think it's a 2004 film. And it plots the ascent of the Dandy Warhols, their rise to fame, while at the same time following Anton Newcomb and the Brian Jonestown massacre, who are going pretty well. And then you sort of see just how crazy and out of control Anton Newcomb is. He kicks an audience member in that film. It's just unforgettable vision, really. So dig, exclamation mark. It's up there at Doc Play as well, but there are thousands of documentaries that you'll love. I highly recommend it. Go to docplay.com forward slash racks forward slash speakola. That's racks with an R. But it's time to get on with the show. I'm going to press play on my interview with Andrew Rule. Well, Speakola is on tour. We are at Southbank Herald and Weekly Times building where I'm speaking to one of the Herald Sun's finest. It is Andrew Rule. He's written for The Age as well, The Sunday Age, and he's won every award you can imagine. Quills, Gold Walkleys, Graham Perkins, Australian Journalist of the Year. You've done it all. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. Pleasure to do stuff with you as usual, Tony, as ever. Well, I think people wouldn't think immediately of speeches when I say your name. You're a, you're a writer and a story breaker and an investigative reporter, but I yep. think you're a, a wonderful speech writer. Is speaking something that's always been a part of your life? No, I uh, don't consider myself a very good speaker. I've sort of come to it uh, in early middle age, really, in the last 20, 25 years. As a young man, I, it terrified me. I can remember being horrified at having to speak at my own wedding when I was, you know, 22 or something. And um, I was always, you know, a bit of a wordsmith and I knew I could write words that would translate. So I, ha- I had that problem of writing things that, and then reading them and they were, they were okay, but it never quite matched the power or spontaneity of the of the natural public speaker. And, you know, we all know some people who are very, very good at it and they it comes from deep inside them and they don't read it. They can speak off the top. And over the years, I have learned to do that better, but I still, in part of me, would rather write every word and get it dead right. So, And you are a natural writer and you started early. Like you, you entered, I, I read somewhere that your, I think Neil Mitchell actually wrote a little bio of you, yep. that your break came at the East Gippsland show, wasn't it? Where you you uh, entered yeah. a competition. As a schoolboy, I won the sale 
agricultural show essay writing competition back to back in 73 and 74. That is 1973. 1974, $5 prize. I won it back to back because there was money involved. And topics? Uh, oh, something like, you know, what uh, one of them was, you know, why agriculture is important in the modern world or something. Yeah, okay. Uh, and the other one I can't recall. But um, it'll be something similarly anodyne. And self-serving, <laughs> it was a show. But the prize was donated, the $5, which was then, you know, you could fill a, a car with fuel for $5 in those days. The prize was donated by the local paper, the Gippsland Times. And that was my entree into journalism. When one of my schoolmates dropped out as a cadet reporter, I think he might have had a nervous breakdown or something sad. They called me and said, do you want to pick up this guy's job? He's left us. You know, this might have been... February, might have started in November, and by New Year he was gone, and they called me and said, do you want to, I said, yep, no worries, so I worked at the Gippsland Times and the Mafra Spectator for one year. We're going to talk about a speech you delivered for your dad, a eulogy you delivered for your dad, yeah. and it's 25 years ago this year, yeah. and it's a, it's a beautiful speech, but in many ways it's an ode to an old school Australian, and, and it's a man with an axe, and who could... You know, do anything with an axe and yep. he cut down trees and he planted trees and he lived. And to me, I sort of had the the image of sort of the ultimate bushman. Yeah. And yet here you are with, you know, and it's a beautiful turn of phrase. What was the what was the thing that twisted you from that, that kind of Gippsland man of the land to being someone who was so comfortable around a sentence? Look, my mother was a was a school teacher for you know, for life and a very good one. She was extremely good at teaching primary children particularly, and uh, she focused, I think she was good at teaching all kids, and she gave a lot of people a good start in life, but she especially gave her own children a good start, and I can recall as a little boy uh, looking, you know, when I was four or five, looking up at the cards she had around the kitchen, at the kitchen table, we could look on the, the wall and there'd be one, O-N-E, two, T-W-O, three, T-H-R-E-E, and all the way to eight. And even when I was, you know, 15, I'd think, oh, how do I spell eight? Oh, E-I-G-H-T. And I knew because we had these cards when we were little boys and mum would point them out to us and get us to spell stuff. So we were always familiar with words and then with stories. She would read us stories and then get us to read stories. So by the time I... She, I think she taught us at home for maybe one or two years. And then I went off to school and I was just hooking library books out of the um, school library and reading you know, cowboy books instead of John and Betty. And I remember being reprimanded for it by the teacher because I, I wasn't particularly keen on the arithmetic or the John and Betty I hated because it's so boring. And I'd be reading these cowboy books about, you know, Pokemoto riding his burrow and with his Winchester and all that good stuff. And I got hooked into reading by grade two. And and I noticed another thing you do, and you did it just then when I asked you about your mum, you immediately went to, and she put numbers up around the room. And mm. so that when people are listening to that story, they immediately start visualising the actual moment of teaching rather yeah. than you saying what most people do is they say, my mum was a really good teacher and they stop short of the good story. Point. Good point. And if you listen to and read these eulogies that are up on Speak Ola, there's yeah. one for your dad, there's one for Les Carline. It's amazing how quickly you go from point I want to make about him into the concrete, the little story, the, the anecdote yeah. that stays with people and actually warms people. It does. And, and is that something that, you know you do or is that something you've always done? Um, I think I always had a tendency to do it and then later as I got you know more cunning and you get you're like a we journalists we're like riding school ponies we do do a lot of the same thing over and over and some of us learn from it and learn to do it better uh, not everybody does some people do the same thing <laughs> for 40 years and that, that doesn't alter but I um, learnt from some very good writers and journalists and, you know, writers in the wider world, uh, particularly Les Carline was one who understood, he understood exactly how to do those things and he would say, give the concrete example, give the anecdote, you know, use the anecdote. And I, I learned a lot from admiring Les's work and he had learned a lot from everywhere. 
he'd learnt from Hemingway and from Tolstoy and from Mark Twain and Steel Rudd. So a lot of his wisdom was distilled and ended up with people, not just with me, but I was one of the lucky ones. If you're going to look at the feature speech, the the one we're looking at, the eulogy to your dad, yeah. I thought I'd almost start at the end. You know, your dad dying, you're writing this, well, it's an essay or, a, or a, yeah. a obituary. You're writing his obituary while he's still alive he was. in the next room. Can you sort of take us back to what was going on? What were you thinking? What was this piece of writing? Well, look, I was, you know, I was 40. Um, my father was the age I am now. He was 65. He got cancer, not overnight, but within a matter of weeks, he went from being diagnosed to, to being, you know, we knew he was dying. I think diagnosis to death was seven weeks. And I spent that seven weeks with him at home on the farm. And uh, a lot of people came to visit because he was much loved. He was a popular man and people liked him. And he he liked people. And uh, he had a broad acquaintance. He, he was a good storyteller. Uh, he had a good sense of humour. And his half-brothers, my uncles, were great raconteurs. They weren't polished. They weren't writers. But they understood the value of, of uh, mimicry and, and, you know, uh, being funny and they, they entertained people with stories. But they were sort of pre-television people. And so they they could sit around and tell stories at the dinner table in a way that no one does now, really, I don't think. Um, and probably only people in jail do that now. You know, the, the rest of us don't do it. And so, so it's not only reading Dickens and all the books, but it's listening to people like my father and my uncles and I think Peter Corris, the author, said that too. His uncles who'd been to World War II were diggers who came home and used to take him to the boxing and to the races. And he picked up a lot of that colour and that love of a yarns, yarn spinning that came across in his books, you know, the uh, Cliff Hardy series. Very, very good writer. And similar Im- impulses to my own. And did you know this was going to have to be a, a big like, – was there a pressure on you as you were writing this? Is this kind of the most important person in your life dying Look, in the next room? Yeah, I didn't really answer your question. It was, and probably I didn't answer it because it was certainly the most um, saddest thing that had happened to me. I'd had a very fortunate life, so, you know, apart from losing grandparents – uh, I'd had a, a very good life in many ways and no real sad things. And um, to lose my father at a relatively young age, I've, I've found very hard. I'm the oldest and I'd grown up with him. He used to take me, as the story says, he used to take me into the bush with him. While my mother had you know, little tiny children, I would go with him from the age of three or four or five in those years out into the bush in his old truck and he would cut timber and I'd hang around with him and just be with him and um, he was only 24 when I was born so I I remember him turning 28 so he was a young man and sometimes I see a a young guy now a young blonde fellow with the the short haircut that's now that's now fashionable again it's the same short back and sides that my dad used to have in you know 1964 and I think oh he looks like dad but it's just that that uh, you lose a few decades when you just see someone. And it's, he's, it's an incredibly vital portrait of him. I mean, he's mm. such a physical guy. Yeah. Like the and the axe is central to the whole thing. And yeah. that would have been an easy decision, I imagine. This when you were trying to work out what is this man's life. Yeah. Um, it's a you, you start with chopping some wood yourself, yeah. and where you're going to put the axe, and the position that he'd leave yeah. an axe. It, it sort of wrote itself because I was so. In the, I went home to the farm and was there. He's in bed. He's getting worse every day. And every day I'd get up and cut wood and make a fire because it cheered the whole house up. And it was winter, so he would come out and sit in front of the fire. And I'd have it going at 6 o'clock in the morning. And the, the axe and cutting wood was, which is what he'd done all his life, was sort of part of, it was a way to sort of keep things normal. But I was doing it, not him. His axe when I got when I got there, and he hadn't picked the axe up for a fortnight. It just already had some rust on the on the blade, and it would never have had rust on the blade for forty years before that, probably. And I realised then that he would never use it again, and that 
you know, still I still find that very affecting. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful image, and and mm. you do the writer's trick of, I think you use nice and easy or something like that yeah. as the position, yeah. and that comes back. Yeah. Um, towards the end of the piece as well. Yeah. Um, you're good at his physical description. I reckon that's rarely in a eulogy. Sometimes, I guess, if people are particularly striking in their youth and people want to be reminded of that. And but you've got like his wiry strength and his yeah. singlet and his smell is all yeah. there. Yeah. And you can tell you're a, a writer when, yeah. when you're doing that. You do you give a few little character details i guess that i think you might have thought were important to him you know like animals for example yeah and, he was and, kind and good manners yeah he was very kind and gentle he was funny i, I think i compared him i said like the best horses and dogs he was he was tough but never vicious he, he didn't bite you know yeah but, but he was he was just a tough man but he was very gentle very kind hardly ever raised his voice I can remember he might have smacked me once when I was thoroughly deserved it. You know, I was doing something bad to my, one of my brothers. But uh, probably didn't smack us enough, really. He was a very gentle man. But a brave, strong man for all that. Yeah. yeah and, you know, yeah. And again, the little nuggets of, of anecdote which do the job of character description. So you show one where he picks up a fly-blown piece of yeah, a sandwich, sandwich and eats it so as not to embarrass a woman who's brought Who's over. made it for him. Yeah. He said, he looked at it <laughs> and he said, this is, and then he thought, and, and she, she looked at him and she didn't know. And he went, yeah. no, oh, it's lovely. And he just ate it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those are things, yeah. aren't they? That yeah. Probably a writer gets that right. Yeah. And, and, and you also had him, the, the title of the piece is Solomon in a Singlet. And Which is a line from the piece. Yeah, a line from the, yeah, for for the yeah. I mean, he'd um, we'd been fighting over the swing. We had a swing on a big uh, round leaf box tree, great big tree that's still there, and it had a, a long horizontal limb. And Dad had tied a piece of rope to it and a tire, an old car tire, which makes a beautiful, simple swing. And of course, we're fighting over it. The three boys, born in three years between us, you know, that we were all close, and we're squabbling and. He got sick of it and he vaulted the fence with the axe. He vaulted <laughs> over the fence and cut the swing down, cut the rope. Oh. And that, that sorted it out. There was no more fights. <laughs> yeah, well, the axe is just everywhere in this yeah. place. The axe is cutting down swings. It's whittling. It's, whittling. Uh, he, he'd, he'd cut up the sandwiches on the – he'd take sandwiches into the bush and he'd want to give me half so he'd, he'd have the full round of sandwich, you know, uncut. So he'd just put it down on the clean log, clean sleeper. Uh, which is beautifully clean, and then he just draw the very sharp axe corner to corner and cut the cut the sandwich in in kitty corners. And the other interesting thing I thought was that I was I was reading it going, oh, you know, everyone's going to think old school. He's a logger, and he's a you know he's going to be a he's a he's a cut down tree guy. And then yeah. then you sort of devote a couple of paragraphs to his conservationism. Yeah, that, that actually, you know, that he loved trees. He and did love trees, and he he said to me once, the bush really benefits from a few people like me. He's like him. He meant. He said we just poke around and we see one tree there and we cut four sleepers out of it and then we go half a mile over there and we find another tree and we get two sleepers out of it and some posts and then we cut the head up and the slabs into firewood you know and so on nothing's wasted you know and of course those fellas were never hurting the bush because they just it's like picking one tomato in a paddock full of tomatoes it's not an issue it's and he didn't really like the clear felling and although he was part of that in a sense a part of that industry he wasn't and he didn't like that stuff much. He liked what he used to do, which was really just gardening, you know, just a little bit of harvesting here and there. Uh, and he was a he was very he was a good bush carpenter, you know, and he made stuff and um, good bush mechanic. Like a lot of those guys, they could do a bit of everything. And you do a rapid fire things he could do, and yeah. that's a really. If anyone's writing a eulogy, I just thought, what a, a fantastic technique this is. Yeah. Where you just go really quickly through different things that he could do. You cleared land, burning windrows and windrows. What's that? Sorry. Yeah, the big windrows are great big uh, piles of uh, fallen timber. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So you cleared land burning windrows and stumps and sowed down pasture and never wasted a stick of useful timber. You could quote Patterson and Gordon by the verse and drop a line of Shakespeare, Steele, Rudd, Runyon or the Bible to suit most occasions. You could play tunes on a gum leaf, sing a lullaby in the local Aboriginal dialect or make a bark humpy, a legacy of growing up on Lake Tyres Aboriginal Station. It's just this sort of... Like for the next two paragraphs, you take us through, and you can cover a lot of ground that way. Bang, it's bang, that bang. That sort yeah. of yeah. I, I thought it was a really interesting technique. Well, it's and you know, I guess years of journalism where you have to writing features where you've got an absolute deadline of whatever it is, two thousand. Oh, sorry, a, a length of two thousand words or something, and you have to fit so much meaning in to a to a paragraph. And this is this is a discipline that the average person doesn't learn or get because they don't have to write to length. It must be much harder for budding authors to learn these things than for journalists who have honed these skills, you know, the 10,000 hours. It's like having to play the violin in pubs for 20 years. You do get better at it. Like the Beatles in Hamburg, you yeah. get better at it. <laughs> and um, because I've written, you know, a lot of features and news features uh, and columns to length and to deadline, you learn a few of these tricks. And you go in, you do his second career as a bushman, and finally you get to the bit, which is cancer. I think this is the bit that kind of... So it's a really beautiful portrait of a man up until two-thirds, and then the last third or the last quarter is just finally you came up against something you couldn't fix with an axe, and that's the cancer section. And I think that's... I mean, he's in the next room, he's still alive, and you're talking about the the coffin that you'd make and and yeah. the sort of coffin that he'd like and the, and that it would suit yeah. a lot of the skills that you've talked about, the the, the use of the choice of timber, yeah. the, the placing of an axe. Yeah. It's really it's a yeah. real tearjerker, isn't it? Yeah, it's it is. A, it is. I know, it's still, reading it now, all these years later, it still affects me. That's amazing. And it, it, most things I've written 20 years later, I go, oh, that was all right, or oh, that was... Good or I've forgotten this one, but I remember every line of this. I yeah. remember every line, yeah. Did it take a long time to write? Not really. I wrote it, uh, it might have, look, probably bits and pieces over a week or two. You know, I, I mean, I was there looking after him, uh, and I read it to him. My wife, God bless her, got me to read it to him on a Sunday night, and he died the next night. So you read I it read to it him? I read it to him. Oh, that's... Uh, How did that go? And I... <laughs> I didn't. Well, I wasn't that keen on doing it. I didn't think I'd get through it, but I did, and I, I'm pleased I did because she said she saw it. And I was, I was, I'd literally been writing it in the next room, you know, when he's through the wall, and I could hear him breathing and coughing and whatever. And I read it. Yeah, I read it to him. So there you go. And then <laughs> we told him we were making the, we told him we were making this coffin out of his boards, which were iron bark and box. And a bit of red gum on the cover. But iron barking box is extremely dense. These are very tough timbers and they're heavy and they're dense. Some of them won't float, right? And we were cutting, we were, we'd taken sort of inch boards that he'd cut and trimmed with a broad axe, actually. And a man had donated them back to us. A man who bought them, gave it back. And we put them through a thicknesser and smoothed them up. But they're still very heavy. And we made this coffin, my brothers and I, and we put horseshoes on his handles and we only put six handles on because conventionally and we should have put eight <laughs> because when we told dad we were making it he said you'll need a bloody forklift to lift it <laughs> and he, and he was right it, it nearly killed us at the, at the, at the funeral um, lifting it not because of him but because of the, the weight of the actual coffin which was then we put it in the crematorium we took the horseshoe handles off removed his axe and it went into the into the furnace, um, and we burnt that beautiful timber with him. So. And you said that that's what he wanted because yeah, he he wanted he liked the. There's an image in the, in yeah. the piece about seeing the the sparks fly he said, out of the sky. He reckoned the Vikings had the right idea. Yeah. He said, "Don't put me in the cold ground. I want to be go like that." And I'd remembered we'd remembered that. So. And so I always ask people about the the speech itself. How, how similar was the eulogy to the piece that was written oh, that I, you're going to read for us? I. Word for word, except I did throw a few ad-libs in when there's a thing there about somebody 
pinching some bush out of the state forest, crown land or something, pinching some timber, you know. And I looked at the guy that did it and said, that means you. Well, you know, there were a few little ad-libs, but by and large, I just read it. And, and laughs? Or this is, might, have, might have been the odd one. It's not overly uh, – look, it's not sort of the classic uh, joke after joke eulogy, I have to say, because it was a written – I wrote it as a piece for the paper where I then worked. It was a feature that I wanted to write and, and um, I wrote it, but – Having written it, I read it at the funeral. I realised that you know most eulogies are not quite that structured. They're they're a little more off the cuff and a bit more verbal, you know, ver- verbatim. And you don't need those sort of structured sentences. You can get away with it. You can get away with very short, sharp things in. The, but you know, generally, um, you can go to a funeral or a wedding and do the jokes. And then you can switch around to the serious stuff at the end. I think that's not a bad. I think that's not a bad model for any speech. Do you? Absolutely. I think both work together well. And you finish up with a. You mentioned Gordon as someone he liked as a poet, and you, you went did. with the Gordon quote at the I end. I did. Yes. Life is mostly froth and bubble. Two things stand like stone: kindness in another's trouble, courage in your own. Yep, that sort of summed up my father, and he he often quoted. Bits of Gordon, uh, quite affecting bits of Gordon and bits of Patterson and bits of uh, a few lines <laughs> and a bit of Shakespeare here and there. You know, he'd say something, you know, so it's a poor thing, but mine own. You know, it was, I think it's King Lear or something, but he'd say it about a, you know, a loaf of bread that he made. He'd make damper when we ran out of bread, he'd make damper or something, <laughs> stuff like that. Well, this eulogy to Keith Rule is an absolute beauty. It went up almost in the first week of Speakola. I asked Andrew if I could put it up, and it's been one of our most popular speeches over the seven years of the site. So thanks so much for oh, it's a letting, us, letting us have it. Um, I've been lucky enough to go on your podcast, and I hope people listen to that. It is called Life and Crimes with Andrew Rule, and uh, I'm a guest for two consecutive weeks talking about footy rogues. And yes, rogues, scallywags, and and uh, the occasional villain. So this is a this is a cross embrace of two podcasts. It is. It's, it's cross pollination. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on, Andrew. Not a problem. Thank you, Tony. Speakola. Thank you, Andrew Rule, and thank you, John Burton, who's a producer in there at News Limited and I sat in the studio and interviewed Andrew there and John did all the recording for me and sent the files. So thank you so much, John. And the first of the two apps that they're putting up with me is called Black Sheep in Footy Boots Part 1. goes up this Saturday on Life and Crimes. There's no audio of the eulogy as delivered, but Andrew was good enough to re-record it for me. So here it is, Solomon in a Singlet by Andrew Rule for Keith Rule, delivered 27th of June, 1998, Lake Tyres, Victoria. Solomon in a Singlet, a eulogy for Keith Rule. The morning after we got the news, I went out to your wood heap. There was that big old axe you used in the bush all those years ago, just the way you'd left it stuck in the chopping block, like a signature. I split wood until the memories and the tears came flooding back. Then I dropped the axe back in the block, nose down, handle sticking up, as neat as you please, just like you would, Dad. Remember how we used to get around in the old Blitz Army truck, the one you'd bought when you were 16 and drove for years before you got a licence? I hadn't started school, but I'd begun my education, sprawled on the petrol tank that doubled as a seat, my head on your lap, lulled by the old side-valve V8 grumbling away behind its thin, tin cowling. I watched the way you used to pat the old girl into gear, those huge work-stained hands easing the gear stick through the unforgiving crash box while you double-clutched and caught the revs just right. Listen to her, you'd say as we laboured up a hill with tons of timber or a bulldozer on the back, slurping petrol fast as you could pour it out of a two-gallon bucket. 
and you'd laugh and sing King of the Road. You turned 24 the week I was born, so I remember you as a young bloke, a father of three boys by 27, fair-haired, a bit under six foot and around 13 stone in the old scale, equal parts, bone and muscle, common sense and good humour, wrapped inside a blue singlet with the honest smell of sweat and gum trees. You didn't change much in 30 years. Later, people sometimes took us for brothers born a dozen years apart. Like the best dogs, horses and people, you were tough but never mean. We'd marvel at how you picked up hot coals when they fell from the fire, juggle them casually and toss them back. Your heart was a lot softer than your hands. Once, when a visitor produced sandwiches she'd made specially, you saw the ones she offered had been fly-blown on the long trip out to see us. Rather than hurt her feelings, you took it, thanked her and ate it. Poker-faced. Chivalry, Mum called it. Whatever it was about you, we liked it. Little boys in books wanted to be firemen or train drivers, but your boys wanted to be sleeper cutters, just like you. You'd set up your landing in the shade, preferably to catch a lazy afternoon breeze sneaking up a gully from the lake. You'd fall a tree, measure off nine feet the ancient way, stepping out the log, heel to toe, then saw it off and snig it to the landing with the tractor. You'd belt the bark with the back of the axe to loosen it, then slit it open and lever it off as easily as a slaughterman skins sheep. You'd save sheets of stringy bark and if it rained, we'd lean them against a tree, shelter under it and drink sweet coffee from your battered old steel thermos. You used most tools well, but the axe was your favourite. Your good axe had an oversized head, razor sharp and a succession of hickory handles worn silky smooth with use. You could do nearly anything with it, and did. At lunchtime, you'd put the sandwiches on a fresh-sawn sleeper, which smelt so sweet and sharp and clean, and cut them from corner to corner with the axe, as neatly as if you'd used a kitchen knife. You used it to sharpen the stubby carpenter's pencil for marking the ends of the logs. You used it as delicately as a scalpel, to notch the ends of the log, right on the pencil mark, ready for the string line. And when you finished with the axe, you'd casually drop it nose first into the boards and stick it in perfectly every time, with the handle rising just right. As neat as you please, was the way you put it. You'd shake the battered tin of blue powder to coat the string, stick it in those tiny cuts at each end, pull it taut, pluck it up and twang it. And presto, a straight blue line on the wet virgin sapwood. You started the swing saw and backed it rhythmically down the log, the machine straddling it with skinny legs on tiny tyres, the howling circular blades' cruel shark teeth throwing up a plume of sawdust as graceful as a rooster's tail. And that's when your little boys got a chance to sneak into the bush, dragging the axe. We'd cut a whippy wattle stick, and borrow a length of your good cord as a bowstring, but only if you'd notch the ends of the bow with the axe. You always did, and more besides. Sometimes, with two sure hits and a quick trim, you'd make a cricket bat from a sleeper offcut. You made us a ripper billy cart, the chassis made of hardwood, the front tapered with the axe, the steering a piece of light rope, like reins. Your own childhood had been spent fishing, riding, shooting and swimming and you always had a soft spot for childish pastimes. But you had limits. One day we squabbled too much over the swing you'd made with a tyre and a rope slung from a big round-leaf box tree. You vaulted the fence, axe in hand, and cut the rope without a word. Solomon in a singlet. Later, after we'd reflected on our sins... You put the swing up again. That was you, Dad. Slow to anger, quick to forgive and forget. Always practical. You were never keen on punishment or revenge and mostly turned the other cheek. About all that made you angry was injustice to another person or cruelty to animals. You despised callousness or misplaced sentimentality that let animals suffer. 
If they were sick or injured and couldn't be helped, you put them out of their misery with a bullet or a lightning strike with the axe. Quick and clean, you used to say. You gave an old dog or an old horse a good feed and a pat before they took the walk from which only you returned. Not that you like killing anything. Remember your youngest boy conning you to let a sheep go instead of slaughtering it? You decided we could go without fresh meat rather than upset him. One of the few times I saw you angry in public was when you fronted a youth being rough with sheep in the sale yards. He got the message. Our world was small, and it seemed to us you could do nearly anything in it that was worth doing. You could swim strongly, box a bit, shoot well, and drive anything, and you taught us how. You'd started work at 14, got the army truck at 16, had a bulldozer not long after you got the vote, and a pilot's licence, and later, a couple of boats that gave us golden memories of summers on Lake Tyres. You knew a thousand practical things, wisdom won from experience, as a farmer and a bushman. Like the shine on your axe handle, it came only with time and hard work, but you were always willing to share it. All our lives you've shown people how to do things in that easy-going way and kept learning yourself. You can learn one thing from anybody, you always said. You could sharpen any saw. You were a bush carpenter and mechanic, a handy welder and blacksmith. You grew up around horses and helped drove cattle as a boy. You could stitch harness, use a stock whip and a branding iron. You once milked 26 Jersey cows every day and raised pigs. You could tan a kangaroo hide, set a wild dog trap, whistle a fox, rob a beehive, butcher a sheep or shear one. You could mend a chair or chair a meeting. You cleared land, burning windrows and stumps and sowed down pasture, but you never wasted a stick of useful timber. You could quote Patterson and Gordon by the verse and drop a line of Shakespeare, Steel Rudd, Runyon or the Bible to suit most occasions. You could play tunes on a gum leaf, sing a lullaby in the local Aboriginal dialect, the Gunai dialect or make a bark humpy, a legacy of growing up on Lake Tyres Aboriginal Station, where you played in the football teams of the early 1950s. You played on heart and toughness. You had to. You played hurt every week because of what you nonchalantly called your crook foot, a twisted instep caused by childhood polio that left you with a lifetime limp. But your foot didn't stop you rucking four quarters without a rest in now and now's winning grand final team of 1956. Your mates chaired you off the field and they gave you a trophy for the most determined player. Mum still laughs about how all the local girls lined up to kiss you after that legendary game. For a man who cut down plenty of trees, you loved them. You knew individual trees among thousands and could find them in the bush years afterwards. You could look at a piece of sawn timber and say if it was grey or round-leaf box, mahogany or messmate, silver top or stringy bark. Once, you amazed a neighbour by glancing at his new stockyards and telling him exactly where he'd poached the red box timber from deep in the state forest, two kilometres away. When you went wheat farming on the plains near Bendigo in the 1970s, you missed the tall timber and the whisper of wind in the gum leaves at night. Perhaps that's one reason you were among the first to regrow trees on country where a century of ring barking and burning had made bleak, bare paddocks. You planted, fenced in and watered hundreds of trees in a belt running a mile across the farm. You planted roadsides and made plantations in places where salt was rising to blight the soil. And still you missed the bush. Your railway sleeper quota was gone but you were younger than most sleeper cutters you'd known and still strong. You'd been one of the last in East Gippsland to start out with a crosscut saw, a broad axe and splitting wedges, tools that hadn't changed much since medieval times. You learnt from axemen who'd worked in the bush since the turn of the century and you spent your teens splitting logs into billets, then squaring them into sleepers with the broad axe. And you never forgot how even after chainsaws and swingsaws took over, which is why, 
when Victoria's oldest farm, Emu Bottom at Sunbury, needed authentic mortised posts and split rails to restore it so a television series could be filmed there, you took the contract. The owner, who was to become a friend over the years, was resigned to buying rare old fences to rebuild, but you told him you could split new posts and rails the traditional way. He was delighted, and so began your second life as a bushman. You mortised posts and split rails for Emu Bottom, then hewed bush timber with the broadaxe to restore and extend its historic wool shed. People heard of your work and sought you out. You were invited to field days and demonstrations and started building showpiece fences and entrances all over Victoria. One of your fences is part of a world-class jumping course at Werribee Park Equestrian Centre. You and an old mate put on an exhibition with the crosscut saw and broadaxe at the Science Works Museum in Melbourne. You supplied and helped build more than a kilometre of picture-perfect post and rail on a millionaire's vineyard and stud in the Yarra Valley. Along the way, you befriended a younger generation of timbermen in the mountain ash forests above Healesville, loggers who'd grown up with machinery but liked the way you could use old hand tools to turn timber into something special. Like your own little boys long ago, they watched you study each log and niggle it with your hook to set it up just right before you struck a blow. They began saving logs for you that would split easily, helped you load up, shared a beer and a yarn after work and became your friends. You were touched when one of the young fellas, as you called them, borrowed your wedges and a little advice to learn how to split rails and shape the ends with an axe. You obliged when a group dedicating to preserving old crafts asked you to give a step-by-step demonstration, which they filmed for posterity. And so, thanks to you, a dying craft was saved. But not the craftsman. It took a while, Dad, but you've finally run up against something you can't fix with the axe. It's cancer, though none of us knew that until it was too late. As I write this, you lie in bed in the next room. I strain to hear you cough and clear your throat and listen for the murmur of your voice as you serve out the little time left to us. Those familiar sounds have become precious in a few short weeks. If courage is grace under pressure, you've got it. As ever, your concerns have been for others, even as that strong body has wasted away, leaving little but strength of character. I saw you sob for the first time in 40 years when you had to tell your mother that you would die before she does. You thanked her for giving you a lovely childhood and told us later you'd planned a eulogy for her that recalled those happy times. Instead, I'm writing yours and it's the hardest job I've ever done. You're sad too because you think you've let your grandchildren down. You decided to retire from farming and cut back the timber work to spend time with them. Only a few weeks before you became ill, you bought a nine-seat station wagon to drive them around. Instead, we used it just a month ago to take you on a last trip to the bush at Lake Tyres. Well, Dad, you haven't let anybody down, ever. That's one reason so many people have come from all over to see you as the news has spread on the Bush Telegraph. Every day, they stream in off the highway and down the gravel road to the old brick house to say goodbye. We knew you knew a lot of people. We didn't realise how many of them loved you too. You've always said that material things don't matter, that people do. Remember, good friends are like gold, you told me the other day. Your voice is strong as your body is now frail. Now, as the clock creeps towards midnight and the end of another precious day, so many memories still echo around my head as they have these last bittersweet weeks. You always liked the yarn about the stonemasons who were asked what they were doing. Cutting stone, one says sourly. Making a living, says the next, matter-of-factly. I'm building a cathedral, exclaims the third. 
You've always been a cathedral builder, Dad. Always believed in what you were doing. Always shown that there can be art and dignity in simple things, in fashioning the functional so it pleases the eye and gladdens the heart. Once when you were burning huge windrows of fallen timber, watching a cascade of sparks shoot up to join the stars, you said, that's the way you wanted to go. I don't want to be buried in the cold old ground, you said. A man ought to make his own coffin and be put in a windrow. Well, Dad, you've left your run a bit late to make your own coffin, but we'll do it for you. One of your friends has offered iron bark and box timber that you dressed with a broadaxe for him. Another offered some red gum from an ancient giant you felled, reluctantly, on the Campaspe River Flats. There'll be hand-forged horseshoes for handles, just the way you'd do it, and sprays of gum leaves from trees you planted. Your broadaxe, the one you started with 50 years ago, will be fixed to the lid. We might even get a truck about your own vintage and twitch you down tight with your own chain and twitch dog. You'll be gone, but you'll never be dead while we're around. You have nine grandchildren. And when we tell them how to do things, it will really be you that's teaching them. When they learn to drive, they'll pat their way through the gears gently, like you did, with just a trickle of throttle, like you always said. When they cut wood, they'll be using one of your axes. We'll show them how you split the tough ones. When they jam the blade, we'll show them how to free it without breaking the handle, the way you showed us. And when they finish chopping, they'll drop it. They'll drop it into the edge of the block. Handle up. Neat. Neat as you please. Just like you. As Adam Lindsay wrote a long time ago, life is mostly froth and bubble. Two things stand like stone. Kindness in another's trouble. Courage in your own. Thanks so much for sticking with the first episode of the Speakola Year, episode 44 of the podcast. Thank you, Andrew Rule. You can read his stuff in the Herald Sun very regularly, or you can buy his books on all sorts of platforms, and that includes the Underbelly books. It includes Chance about gambling. It includes Rule on Crime. He also has a podcast. It's called Life and Crimes. I am his current guest. You can check that out. Thank you to everyone who supported the show, whether it's through donations and financial help. The Speakola Substack, I do think it's a way forward for this project. But also thank you to people who just spread the word, who tell a friend about the show. That helps as well. Thanks for listening. Get in touch if you've got a speech you want me to put up or a podcast possibility for me, a guest. Tony at Speakola.com. All the best. Until next time.